Hello and welcome to A Candle in the Dark, a new monthly conversation about science on KFCF. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we intend to make science a part of our public discourse in the Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. I'm a bird watcher and an evolutionary ecologist by training, and my own research addresses ways to reconcile biodiversity conservation with human development on this increasingly human-dominated planet of ours. It was astronomer Carl Sagan, America's chief science teacher of the 20th century, who described science as a candle in the dark. Science illuminates our way through this indifferent universe and chases away the demons of irrationality that haunt us in the dark of ignorance. Now, in the 21st century, we must hold aloft this candle against strange winds of political illogic that have only grown stronger in the decades since Sagan's passing. As even Thomas Jefferson understood, a well-informed citizenry that understands science is crucial to a democracy. This is especially true now when our lives are dominated by the technological fruits of science and the corporations that market them. A good understanding of science even helps us make informed decisions about a variety of things affecting our daily lives, from the foods we eat to the medicines we take to, our, to the gadgets we use. Yet, science remains an elusive to most ordinary citizens. It is often taught as a body of arcane knowledge requiring specialized training, rather than as the active human enterprise that it is, simply the best way we have invented to understand our universe. And science is fun. Science is not just a practical tool to help us live our daily lives, or to run our democracies, or to save the planet. We must remember before all else that science is motivated by wonder, by that playfully insatiable curiosity about the universe we are all born with, but which we somehow lose through the course of our education into serious adulthood. Science is fun, and we will try to remind you of that every month as we meet with scientists who will share the excitement of their discoveries with all of us through this program. Rather than be ruled by fear and suspicion which hold us back, let us all share in the wonder of science. I founded the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique in the autumn of 2007, inspired by a growing movement of similar cafes worldwide. This monthly event is rather like a poetry reading for science, and it has become a regular feature of Fresno's cultural calendar, much like Art Hop and other events. The cafe meets on the first Monday of each month during the school year. Yes, we professors take the summer off, mostly to do more research. Uh, it's, it's, it's held at 7 p.m. in Peeves Public House on the Fulton Mall in downtown Fresno. And for more information about the cafe and announcements about up upcoming events, I urge you to visit our website, uh, which is at valleycafesci.org. That's valleycafesci.org. Uh, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And I hope you'll join us for a pint of the fine brews on tap at Peeves Pub with a hearty helping of science to nourish your mind. For our first show, it is my great pleasure to welcome our first guest, uh, Professor Doug Singleton from the Physics Department at Fresno State. Professor Singleton is a theoretical physicist who came here in 1998. Uh, he earned his doctorate in particle physics from the University of Virginia by doing research on possible fourth-generation quarks and leptons. At Fresno State, he has been teaching physics and studying particle physics, quantum field theory, and gravitational physics. 
Welcome to a, a candle in the dark, Doug. Uh, thanks, Madhu. And uh, yeah, it will be also uh, say uh, uh, Cafe Scientifique. It's a, a great place to go, and Peeves Public House uh, is a fantastic uh, venue for. Thank for you. That. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. So, uh, in science, we often teach our students to start from basic principles if you want to understand any system. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what better way? to launch our new show than to dive right into the most basic questions about the nature of matter and the origin and structure of our universe. This is stuff that you study. Yes. Right? You're a theoretical physicist and your work addresses these very fundamental questions about the nature of our reality, about strange subatomic particles and even stranger dark matter and dark energy that apparently hold our universe together. So what can you tell us about our current understanding of the universe? Now, now you know, it's been a while since I took my last physics class. And back then, I had this simple model of the atom that is probably still taught in schools about the atom consisting of you know, protons, neutrons, and electrons that spin around them. But I understand things are more complex than that. So what can you tell us? And, and before you answer, I also want to quote physicist uh, Leo Szilard and, uh, and remind you that you, you may assume infinite ignorance and unlimited intelligence on the part of our audience. Although I'm not sure I can claim the unlimited <laughs> intelligence myself, but <laughs> no. uh, with that in mind, okay, uh, please. So uh, I'll try. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a nice quote by Szilard, by mm -hmm. the way. Uh, so actually, uh, our understanding of the atom is still pretty much a, as you sketched it. So it's, uh, the, it has a nucleus of protons and neutrons with electrons that orbit around it. Uh, so, uh, but then as uh, people uh, look more deeply into the atom, uh, well, if they look more deeply into the electron, still up to this point, uh, the electron still looks like a point particle that has electric charge and has another property called spin. So it's as if mm -hmm. it's a tiny ball uh, that has an internal rotation. Okay. Although that picture of the electron as a tiny ball uh, has, <laughs> has yeah. a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a simple way to describe things, but it gets many things wrong. But okay. for a first pass through, yeah. that's good. But uh, now the, the nucleus, right, with the, the proton and the neutron, our understanding of that has expanded. Actually, in the late 60s, with uh, some ex uh, scattering experiments at Stanford Linear Accelerator, people began to understand that protons and neutrons weren't fundamental, but they had uh, tiny bits inside them. Uh, and these bits uh, were called quarks. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now uh, the proton and neutron, we understand, are, are composite particles. The proton is huh. made of two up quarks and a down quark. The wow. neutron is made of two down quarks and an up quark. Uh, and so uh, now, uh, now, at this present mm -hmm. age, we know there, there are six uh, quarks, which have the funny names up down charm strange top bottom so this is all <laughs> your theoretical physicists have fun <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly so actually coming back to the theme of, of science is fun yeah uh, i mean it, it really is i mean uh -huh. so i mean the the naming sounds a little bit childish to some uh you know but it, it indicates the fun that physicists mm -hmm. have with science so anyway we now uh, understand that the you know at least the proton and neutron are composed of these these smaller bits okay and the quarks are actually then paired with electrons as the the fundamental things that we know that exist now it, w as we probe quarks and electrons further we haven't seen any substructure to, okay. to these and actually the quarks you can pair up uh, in in different combinations uh, two quarks or three quarks uh, and you can you can create thousands of, oh, of okay. particles. Okay. So uh, there's actually a, a particle zoo. Now most of yeah. these 
are, are uh, have only a f- very fleeting stability. They mm-hmm. last 10 to the minus 23 seconds, oh, 10 okay. to the six yeah. minus 16 seconds. So they only live for a very brief time. Okay. So you, you, you might say, well, the things that are, that are stable are more or less stable, like the electron, the proton, and the neutron. Neutron is unstable, yeah. uh, except if you put it in, an, in a certain nucleus. But uh, if you count all the different kind of ways you can put quarks together, there are actually thousands of particles oh, th- that that's exist. That's fascinating. So, but the, the basic, uh, if you don't look too deeply, yeah. then the atom still looks like the atom from the from 1940s and 1950s okay. and so forth. But as we've probed deeper, we've seen new things. So Okay, that that's fascinating. Although the fact that the atom still remains kind of the same and functions the same at the upper, upper levels reassures me as a biologist dealing with more complex, you know, living organisms. Anyway, uh, uh, there's one particle that has attracted a lot of attention in, in the media in recent years, and that's the Higgs particle. It's mm-hmm. also been called the so-called God particle. Uh, and, you know, the, we've heard about the uh, work at the Large Hadron Collider in, in Europe, which has been trying to prove the existence of this particle. In, in, in a recent Cafe Scientifique, we had one of your colleagues and you uh, present some uh, information about the, the experiments being done there. What can you tell us about this particle and the experiments which you know people were afraid that this was going to create a black hole that would swallow the Earth? Okay, <laughs> so uh, let me talk about the Higgs first, yeah. and then then the black hole that's going to swallow the Earth. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's not. So uh, spoiler yeah. alert: the black hole not <laughs> going to swallow the Earth. Uh, so actually, the Higgs particle was uh, uh, proposed uh, actually a long time ago by Peter Higgs mm-hmm. and actually several other people: uh, uh, Francois Englert, uh, Brut, uh, Tom Kibble, uh, and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a way to solve a problem uh, in, in particle physics. And this was, uh, we had a nice theory of how the weak uh, interaction worked, okay. uh, except it had one problem. In order to make the, the weak interaction work, mm-hmm. uh, you had to give a mass to the, uh, the weak uh, boson that was responsible for carrying the weak force. So all forces are actually carried by uh, particles that are called bosons. So the okay. particle that carries the electromagnetic force is called the photon. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and so the particles that carry the weak force, the weak force is more complicated, so it's actually carried by three particles, the W plus, the W minus, and the Z naught. Okay. So uh, in order to make the, the weak interaction uh, work, uh, you had to give mass to these the mm-hmm. W bo- uh, boson and the Z boson, the, the particles that were responsible for carrying the, the weak force. Okay. Uh, but now the, theor- the theories that uh, explained how forces work, like the electromagnetic force, appeared to require that these force-carrying particles are massless. And in fact, oh, okay. th- the, the photon is, is in fact massless. massless yeah. Carries energy but no rest mass. Okay. Right? But experimentally, we knew that the, the W and the Z bosons, the ones responsible for the weak force, uh, experimentally, they had to be massive. And so this appeared to be huh. an inconsistency. So the, the theory that described how forces work would require them to be massless, uh, but experiment said these weak force-carrying particles had to have a mass. Okay. So Peter Higgs and the, other, uh, the others that I mentioned, they resolved this issue by introducing the Higgs mechanism and the Higgs particle. So this is a particle that would give mass to these weak uh, mm-hmm. force-carrying particles, uh, allow the, s- the theory that under w- underlying that mm-hmm. to remain consistent, 
and yet be consistent with experiment. Huh. So, so, uh, and uh, so this is in, in some ways a theoretical invention to explain the model that we're now trying to find the evidence of its actual existence. No, and, and we found the evidence. So, yeah. the, the, so we found yeah. the evidence. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it was uh, basically a guess, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it was a way to uh, have the theory of how forces uh, work, mm -hmm. which would require the force-carrying particles to be massless to be consistent with experiment, at least in respect to the weak interaction. Uh, okay. So in respect to the electromagnetic interaction, the theory required the force-carrying particle to be massless, and the photon is, in fact, has no mass. Yeah. So, so everything was fine with the electromagnetic uh -huh. force, but the weak force, not so much. So, but uh, one thing I want to say about uh, Higgs's sort of jump and mm -hmm. the other uh, scientist is like every particle we discovered up until that po point had had an internal spin. So if you look at the electron, the quarks, the protons, they all have an internal spin. So again, mm. you can picture them as tiny balls that rotate. Yeah. Right? Uh, even even the photon, even the force carrying particles, they all have a spin. Okay. Right. They yeah. all have some internal rotation. Yeah. The particle that Higgs proposed has no internal spin ah, and okay. so this was like a really odd thing it was okay. very very strange and so for a long time uh, people didn't uh, believe they said okay well mathematically it works but you know everything is fits but we've never seen anything like this yeah so please we should find something uh -huh. and then so starting uh, like in the early 70s uh, with things like the uh, actually they had another accelerator at CERN mm -hmm. uh, I for Actually, I forget the name, SPS or... Uh, anyway, they they used uh, this accelerator at CERN, the the one prior mm -hmm. to the LHC, to discover the weak bosons. Because actually the weak bosons, they had a mass and were f in fact so massive it turned out that uh, it required a large accelerator to even create them. Hmm. Right. And then uh, people built the uh, the Tevatron in uh, in Illinois, which okay. is, a, which is yeah. like the next high energy particle accelerator. And they looked for the Higgs and didn't find. And they went up, up in energy, up in energy. And I think the final sort of uh, uh, level that they looked was around uh, 110 to 116 GeV. And GeV is giga electron volts, and one GeV is okay. roughly the mass of a proton. Okay. So the, the previous experiment in the U.S. at, at Fermilab with the Tevatron uh, accelerator had looked up to around 110, 116, and still didn't see the, the Higgs. Okay. And so then people started getting worried. Yeah. You know, we have this nice theory, everything <laughs> works, but we don't see we it. Don't see the Higgs, yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what science is about, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you have a nice theory and you don't see it, it's then it's maybe you it's need fantasy. to revise your theory. It's yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Right. So but uh but people were really confident, mm -hmm. really confident that, that there was this Higgs out there. So uh the Europeans uh basically were able to get enough money to upgrade the accelerator at CERN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and build the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. And uh, I forget the exact turn on date. I think the, they first started taking beam uh, in 2008, 2010. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's in the movie Particle yeah. Fever. So they, they, yeah. they, 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 they so. Uh, yeah, just remind our listeners that uh, if you want to find out more about that particular experiment, they should check out the movie Particle Fever, which is available on Netflix and other streaming sources. Right, and yeah. that was the, uh, we yeah. took, uh, during the Cafe Scientifique, we yeah. took clips of that, yeah. and actually, so again, coming back to the theme of, like, how, how exciting science is, I mean, uh, it, if you if you look at that movie, uh, there's a lot yeah. of jargon and, and so forth in it, right, mm -hmm. Madhu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I know, some of it sort of 
as a biologist i was like huh but but i can see the excitement in the in the scientists participating in it it's really right and and that's that's the takeaway message for me from mm -hmm. that it was that it was i mean how excited are they i mean yeah. and they really are you know yeah. and uh so anyway uh, the Europeans got money to build the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, there were two main experiments that mm -hmm. were looking that are looking generically for new physics, right? Mm -hmm. And one was called CMS, and the one that Fresno State is involved in uh, is actually called Atlas. Yeah. And uh, actually, they had so they had some hiccups with the mm -hmm. uh, with the experiment. There was some uh, kind of helium system leak explosion that basically set them back like one, two, three years. Mm -hmm. But I mean, very shortly after they turned the Large Hadron Collider on, basically both the CMS experiment and the Atlas experiment found the Higgs particle. Right? Fantastic, so, so yeah. And this is the first fundamental spinless particle uh, that we've seen in nature. And wow. It, and I mean, the, the thing is, all the other particles, we knew of them experimentally first, uh -huh. and then we cooked up equations to explain them. So people people knew about the electron yeah, yeah, for a yeah. long time. Yeah. And so the you know uh, for a long time uh, we weren't able to describe its properties very uh -huh. well, but Paul Dirac uh, sitting in a fireplace in England, uh, so the story goes, yeah. uh, w was staring deeply into the fire, and suddenly he knew how to write down an equation yeah. for the electron. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, but the electron was known first, and, uh -huh. and it gave uh -huh. him a clue. Uh -huh. Right. And you know then uh, you know people looking at how force the force equations worked, how the, uh -huh. the force carrying particles worked. Uh, you know, came up with uh, what's called gauge theory, which are, is our best understanding of how forces work. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we'd know we'd known of those particles before. I mean, those those were known, and so yeah. we we had a hint from nature. Yeah. But the the Higgs particle was basically is it was a theoretical construct to solve a problem, right? And then it turned out that actually that was true. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. Yeah, and that must feel great for a theoretical physicists like you, because now you have bragging rights over your empiricists who asked you to, you know, who, who, who you had to follow typically, but now you've made them go look for something that you predicted. That's that's great. Yeah, and I, I love this interaction between theory and, and empiricism in science. Yeah, and, and that's the, that's the yeah. heart of science. I mean, yeah. oftentimes theorists are criticized for uh, constructing these grandiose theories yeah. which are actually disconnected and, and yeah. there, there's actually something to that <laughs> of course to that but you yeah. know every once in a while you get someone like a, a peter higgs yeah uh, that basically takes a leap and uh, it, it turns out to be true and fantastic. those are those are the fantastic you know moments in science so. yeah that's really amazing so uh that's where we are with the higgs what comes next for this uh, the large hadron collider or for your field of particle physics okay so one one of the things that comes next is they need to study the Higgs further. Okay. okay. So uh, they need to make sure. So Higgs's theory actually predicted very specific properties for the Higgs particle. Actually, the one thing it didn't predict was the mass, but many other things it did predict, like how it should decay and so mm -hmm. forth, and the rate it would it would decay into other particles. And so now uh, what people are going to do with the uh, turn on and actually. Uh, Yongsheng Gao, so my yeah. colleague on the yeah. Atlas, so he's going to be taking shifts at CERN okay. this spring, and he he's all excited because basically now they're going to base they're going to start looking at the Higgs in more detail, and ask the question, hey, is that the Higgs that Peter Higgs predicted, or is it something, something different? Else, huh? And actually, it would be even more exciting if it's something a little bit different, huh. because that would actually point us in a direction for what's next, right? And, and that's kind of the aha moment we scientists look for, right? Yeah, it's something that's. Sur a surprise. 
Yeah. So at actually, new discovery. So yeah. the, the discovery of the Higgs, in some sense, wasn't a surprise because yeah. uh, it had been predicted for a long uh -huh. time. So in some sense, it's it's not that you know that mm -hmm. it it doesn't tell us where to go next. Yeah. But by studying the detailed properties of the Higgs, yeah. it's hoped that uh, you know we will get a clue as to what comes next. And and everyone hopes there's something that comes next. Yeah, because otherwise I'm out great. of a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's plenty that yeah, yeah, keep so coming, so and that's kind of you know the expanding glow of light from this candle that that Sagan talked about. Uh, you mentioned the Atlas project at Fresno State, so that brings me to sort of a, a, a more sociological kind of question in our context. And I'm just wondering, you've been in Fresno State as a as a physics teacher and a researcher for over uh, almost. F f 15 S years, 16, seven, years. 16 years now. Has it been that long? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, and on campus, we always have these conversations about the nature of our student body and how increasingly we find students are not prepared for some of the harder science courses. A lot of them are first generation students, you right. know, from immigrant or farm worker families, non-English speakers. And we also have a group of students who might be raised in religious or conservative households where science is a, something that's viewed with suspicion. So how do you get this kind of mixed body of students excited about chasing after something like the Higgs? And what challenges do you sort of face in conducting science at an institution like ours? Uh, that's, that's a very good and yeah. very very broad question. Yeah. Uh, so actually, l let me answer it in this way. Mm -hmm. So first I'm going to tell you not how I get students interested in mm -hmm. science, but how, how Yong Sheng, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Dr. Gao, gets students interested in science. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, he has uh, a, a large NSF grant and yeah. he's gotten actually he's gotten the university to to uh, give money towards sending students every summer since I think 2008 and 2009 over to the Large Hadron Collider, and so you know the the thing is like yes our students sometimes don't have the best uh, preparation, mm -hmm. uh, but you know they're every bit you know the 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 quote from Zillard like yeah. you know. Uh, you have you, you haven't learned a lot. You, so a uh, big ignorance, yeah. but you have uh, infinite intelligence. So that yeah. actually describes our students uh, very well. Exactly. They yeah. don't have maybe say the best background as compared to a student who's gone to a private uh, high school and then on to like say Harvard or someplace like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, once our students get over there, once uh, Yong Sheng sends them over there for the summer, and he sends them for like about ten weeks. They they really blossom. I mean, uh, oh yeah, not all of yeah, them, but but there's some of them that that really catch fire. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've had students that go over there and have done such a great job that in fact we've had trouble getting them back. I mean, they've gotten <laughs> offers. Hey, so you're yeah. you're kind of crucial to this aspect of the uh, project we're doing. Yeah. Can you take some time off from your university and stay in Switzerland for another six months? We've had students go over there that have gotten uh, offers to do their PhD work uh, in some European university, yeah. uh, and so you know the this is you know once they see how real science works, mm -hmm. I mean they really catch fire. And yeah. you know what's not to love about going over to Switzerland? Exactly, in the yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> what that's what I was saying. I mean, it, this is something that if you have any high school students listening uh, to the show now, you know they should be looking at Fresno State for these kinds of opportunities because yeah. you could come and study physics with some other you know top scientists who are working on the most fundamental questions and you could travel the world you could go to, go to Switzerland work on yeah. you know in these large teams of uh, and and that was one of the things that was exciting about the movie particle fever to me as well that how much of this work even in theoretical physics is so international i mean you've also you have a lot of international collaborations you've traveled Yep. a fair amount for your your research so that to me is exciting and you know it must be sort of quite 
quite fun to be part of large collaborative teams like that. Right. So actually, so as aside from the science, I mean, Madhu, you're right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in uh, in these large experiments, I mean, there there are thousands of physicists, postdocs, grad students, and they come from everywhere. So I mean, actually, this is one place where people uh, do get along, regardless of like uh, their yeah. their nationality. So at the Large Hadron Collider and these different experiments, you have scientists from Iran, from Israel, uh -huh. from from countries that are mortal enemies of each other. Yeah. They don't care about that. What they care about is figuring out how nature works, even to a small degree. And so, you know, and our, and our students come back and they talk about, you know, uh, they've made a friend from Spain and then they go, you know, on mm -hmm. the, the Ural, they go uh, yeah. on a, the train, they go to Italy for the weekend. Yeah. Then they come back and then they're, they're working at the Large Hadron Collider again. You know, and, and uh, during the summer, there are actually uh, famous researchers who come by and give like sort of summer talks or summer colloquia. And so they get to, you know, meet Nobel, you know, prize winners, you know, mm -hmm. talking to them. So yeah. it's 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 a really uh, great uh, you know opportunity for for our students. So yeah, um, that that's really fantastic, and it, you know this uh, we could keep we could continue these conversations, and I'd I'd suggest uh, that if anyone who wants to come and talk about this stuff, even with you perhaps, should come down to the, the our cafe events because right. you're you're been coming there off and on and. Uh, you know, you can share a beer with Professor Singleton and and ask yes, him more yes. about <laughs> these questions. That would be, or buy him a beer. Or, I don't know. Or, yeah, if you want to hear me talk more, <laughs> buy me a beer. <laughs> <Buy> me, <yeah. laughs> so uh, thank you, uh, Doug, and uh, it, it's been great having you as our first guest. And I'm, and you know, these conversations can continue. So maybe we'll have you back uh, in a future show to talk more about these. Sure. Yeah. I mean, because I, I didn't explain why the black hole isn't going to eat That's the earth. That's right. And yes. So yeah. So there are things. So uh, <laughs> you know. So if if, if you're interested, I mean, you uh -huh. can look me up on the Fresno State website. Mm -hmm. uh, should I give my email address? Or uh, you can well they can find you. You on can the find the me on the Fresno yeah. State uh, website. And if you have any further questions, feel free to uh, send me an email. And if you're interested about the Atlas program, uh, Dr. Gao and I work together to basically funnel students if mm -hmm. they're interested into that direction. So uh, yeah, shoot me an email. Fantastic. Uh, I should also add that we will uh, the Cafe Scientifique website. Uh, we'll have information about, you know, uh, follow-up additional material about the show, including links to uh, how to reach our guests. Uh, and we will be podcasting uh, these shows as well. So I think there's Good. many ways that people can get engaged. So uh, so I thank you again. Uh, and finally, uh, I want to introduce a, a brief commentary section that will be part of uh, uh, this show going forward. So this will be a series of commentaries that will feature the views of uh, some of my scientist colleagues about uh, what excites them in science or about the role of science in the public square. And of course, as the host of the show, I get to do the first op-ed piece. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, I never thought that in the year 2015, we would see news headlines about a measles outbreak at Disneyland. Wasn't this supposed to be the year when our kids would be zipping around on hoverboards, not getting sick from measles? Measles, for crying out loud. A virus for which we've had cheap vaccines available for decades, and which has supposedly been eliminated from the US way back in 2000. What happened? How did we end up way back in the past, Doc, when we were supposed to be heading into the future? <laughs> How did Disneyland, this icon of the first world, end up looking like a third world country with easily preventable infectious diseases running rampant 
through the happiest place on earth. And this is not the first time Californians have peeled back medical progress either. We recently had an outbreak of whooping cough, another childhood illness easily preventable with a simple vaccine. What's gone wrong? In both cases, it's not the science, stupid. Rather, it is a combination of rational anxieties of parents about their kids, coupled with some bad science about the possible but unproven side effects of vaccines, which has been hijacked by irrational fears about government or corporate conspiracies. You can take your pick depending on whether you're a big government liberal or a small government conservative. But that's what has brought us to this pass. The flames are further fanned by celebrities with self-conferred degrees from the University of Google and charlatans selling alternative drugs under the guise of natural remedies. Not only are anxious but ill-informed parents risking their own children, they also threaten the lives of others vulnerable to infection due to compromised immune systems. Science in the US has always clashed with religious doctrine, particularly of the fundamentalist or biblical literalist variety. My own field of evolutionary biology seems forever locked in an endless cultural and legal conflict with creationism in its various guises, driven by religious ideology and cultural anxieties. Climate change and the human hand in causing it remain mired in manufactured controversy in this country, causing most of the world's scientists to shake their heads at the US in sheer disbelief and frustration. Creationism and climate change denialism tend to be driven by religious and or conservative economic ideologies on the political right. The anti-vaccine movement, on the other hand, drags us back more from the left than the right, proving that the suspicion of science is a decidedly bipartisan trait in America. It is a bizarre world when the anti-science religious fundamentalists of right-leaning varieties are joined by lefty New Age hippies and Silicon Valley libertarians coming together to essentially sacrifice children and their future at the altar of pseudo and anti-science. I grew up in India when smallpox was still around. I still shiver at the remembered dread upon hearing of an outbreak somewhere in our town. The national relief when smallpox was eradicated from India after an aggressive vaccination campaign remains palpable. I still have the vaccine scars on my arm to, to remind me. My wife's mother suffered from polio all her life and died from complications from that childhood infection. I maintain an all too rational fear, therefore, of these deadly diseases, and I trust the weight of scientific evidence on vaccines to make sure my children are properly vaccinated. To forget the toll of human lives that infectious diseases take or have taken in the unvaccinated third world, that is surely the most tragic of first world problems. Stephen Colbert once famously said that reality has a well-known liberal bias. Unfortunately, the anti-vaccine movement shows us that the converse is not true. Liberals don't always have a reality bias. A scientific temper in society is essential for the functioning of a democracy, as Carl Sagan argued. How shocked he might be if he saw today's headlines about scary diseases from his childhood coming back to haunt California in the 21st century. For a candle in the dark, I'm Madhusudan Katti. And finally, uh, a quick reminder that the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique meets on the first Monday of each month at 7 p.m. in Peeves Pub in downtown Fresno. The next event will be on uh, March 2nd, and it, it will feature a, an exciting conversation about art and science with a couple of my colleagues from Fresno State. 
uh, psychologist Martin Shapiro and anthropologist Lisa Anderson have in the for the past few years been running an annual show in spring called Art Scientifique and this is sponsored by Fresno State's College of Science and Mathematics. You can find out more about this show on Facebook and there may even be time still for you to submit your own entries uh, if you do art that has a scientific flavor. You can just search for Art Scientifique on, on Facebook. I'm sure you'll find information about the, uh, the show. And uh, do join us for the cafe conversation if you can. On again, That's again on March 2nd. And uh, remember to tune in next month for another episode of A Candle in the Dark. And until then, happy sciencing. Because remember, science is a verb.